want to greet you this morning in Christ's name. It's good to uh, be here with you and just so grateful for the opportunity of being able to worship together and uh, just amazed that we have this this uh, opportunity. I've been uh, hearing and uh, a friend of mine just again this week sent a, a, uh, an email to me of a, a brother in Iraq that uh, is under severe persecution because of following Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, we, we just don't know anything about that. We come together, and we expect to come together next Sunday and the following Sunday, and, and there's no hindrance other than the cares of this world that sometimes robs us. But, uh, yeah, so it's just a real privilege to be able to worship corporately and uh, certainly it is a reflection of what already has happened in our hearts up until this time. This past week, and we've had the privilege of having some visitors at our place, a couple young men, some of Glad's relatives, her first cousin's sons, two of them at least, Kerwin and Dwight, and their friend Daniel from Lancaster area. So it's good to have them with us They're out for a wedding and joining us this morning. So, what to this morning take you back uh, to the tenth statement of faith? If you look on the back of the bulletin, or you'll also see it here on the PowerPoint, is the uh, tenth statement that we as a congregation have uh, have adopted that speaks about the roles and the function of the church. And uh, I've just, for the sake of those that are visiting, I've been going through the statement of faith and just drawing lessons and, and teaching from that in a series of messages. And this is actually the third message on this statement. And um, it uh, reads like this. We believe the Church of Christ is an organism composed of all who have come alive in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we also believe the local congregation to be part of the visible body of Christ and have been empowered by Jesus to administer scriptural teachings. We accept the literal instructions of scripture in regard to water baptism, the Lord's table, foot washing, the right hand of fellowship and greeting, functional roles and sexes demonstrated by the veil for women and uncovered head for men, the anointing of oil, excommunication, marriage, and the ordaining of elders. And so the first time that we had... Uh, the first message that I had focused on, we, I was focusing particularly on the fact that we follow the literal instructions of Scripture and concluded that the reason that we do this is because of our love for Jesus Christ. Anything more or less uh, than our love for Jesus can easily regress into hypocrisy or, and or disobedience. Many have been the individuals that have put on the cloak of religiosity and uh, happily followed the list of, of uh, requirements that, that were imposed upon them or required from them only to find themselves crumbling under a load of empty rituals and formality and, uh, and, and left them hollow and without Christ. And it's so easy for this to happen. 
We follow the things that are asked of us to follow. And one of the saddest pictures, this is one of the saddest pictures that I can imagine, that I can think of. And I think about an individual and perhaps even put myself in that shoes. Coming before Christ on the day of judgment and thinking of all the things that would qualify me for heaven, all the things that I have done that would qualify me for heaven. And Jesus turning his face away from me and saying, depart, I I don't know you. I don't know who you are. What a sad picture of one who has put his faith and his trust and confidence in those kinds of things. Yet when our actions are rooted in our love for Jesus Christ, then we can obediently engage in these instructions that are laid out for us in the New Testament and in the Scriptures. Even if and when they become traditions of the Christian faith, if they are rooted in a love for Jesus Christ, then there is no hypocrisy in qualified love. And so we looked at various ones of these in, in the list that we had uh, mentioned. Well, last time we looked at the first four, water baptism, the Lord's table, foot washing, and the, uh, the right hand of fellowship and greeting. Today we want to look at the remaining five, the one on the functional roles. In, in sexes demonstrated by the veil for women and the uncovered head for men, the anointing of oil, excommunication, marriage and the ordaining of elders so we want to look at each one of those i have really struggled with putting this together particularly today because there is so much to teach about in such a little bit of time so fasten your seatbelt. here we go let's look at the first one the functional roles as in sex is demonstrated by the veil for women and the uncovered head for men i would like to preface this particular point with a verse that we find in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 37, that says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So the things that we are talking about are not man-made traditions or things that we are promoting as, as, as men. They are, they are exhortations, instructions that are commanded by God himself. I don't know how many of you recall or not, how many of you were here at that time when several years ago I did a three-part exegesis on 1 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 16. And uh, I know that even today, as we look at that briefly, uh, it it seems in some sense that we are going to do injustice, but uh, we'll do our best. I want to make a couple bullet points, highlight a couple bullet points, and I want to share them very pointedly and also without apology because it is the Word of God. There is a verse in this passage, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 particularly, that says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
There is a clear operational role and responsibility that is laid out here in this verse that is stated above or that, that we had looked at here. When these roles and responsibilities are infringed upon, chaos exists. It's like any kind of jurisdiction that God has set up. When those jurisdictional lines are crossed, and you've heard me say this before previously, but any time the jurisdictional roles and responsibilities, whether it's in government, whether it's in church, whether it's by the employer or in the home, or any kind of role that God has established, any principle that he has established, when we cross those lines, we are going to end up with chaos. We see it happening in, in magnification uh, in, in our government system. They have assumed much of the roles that was given to the home and to the church. Shame on the church and shame on the home for not having probably done the part that we should have done. For instance, taking care of our poor. That was never that was never given to the government to take care of. That was the church's responsibility. And uh, we have taxes that are eating us up because we can't keep up with it. Taking care of our elderly. That's not the church's responsibility. That's the home's responsibility to take care of our elderly. And so anytime we cross those jurisdictions, when husband and wife, in the role, or female and male genders. When we cross those lines, we're going to end up with chaos, and we are going to have trouble. And so men who demand submission only admit that they don't have it from their spouse. When women usurp their, the, the, the role of their husband or of their father, they only further alienate the security and the protection that they long to have. Innate within every woman is a deep longing and desire to be covered and protected and to be shielded from the elements of life. And when, when, when that gets usurped, it just further alienates that kind of security and protection. Well, we go on to verse 4 and 5. That says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman <clears throat> who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were covered, were shaved, sorry. A man who covers his head during worship brings equal disgrace as the woman who refuses to cover her head. Now often much more is said about a woman not covering her head and less is said about the covered head for a man. But both bring equal dishonor to the head. By the way, that word dishonor <clears throat> means to be shamed or to actually, it actually has the idea of, of blushing with shame, causing one to blush with shame. And so when we engage in acts of worship, in praying and prophesying, when, these, uh, when, when the man covers his head during that and, and, the, and the woman is uncovered, we bring shame to the head. 
And by the way, the word head, <coughs> and uh, I might have that a little bit later on. I think I do. Yes, I do. I'll just wait a little bit on that. Let's go on to verse 6. For if the woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if she is, sh- but if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. And that word, let her be covered, means to cover wholly. That is to veil, cover, or hide. And when I look at that, two things uh, come to mind. There, th- I think this speaks to two issues. And the first thing is that it speaks to a veil of adequate size. When we cover something, it is, there's nothing, there's nothing that, that is uncovered. <laughs> when, when, we, when we cover something, it, it adequately covers whatever we're trying to hide. And because it speaks of the woman's long hair, I believe that is what it is intention, uh, the t- intentional part of wanting to be covered. And then the second thing is that it speaks to a veil that is adic- or that is opaque in nature. Simply saying that I don't think that this is an, it is not talking about a symbolic covering only although that is part of it. It is symbolic in nature. However, it is also talking about something that is not revealed. And so I would simply ask the question, as I had to myself, how am I doing or how are we doing as a congregation, as individuals? Does our presentation convince others that this is a worthy instruction to follow. I think it's good for us to ask that and to evaluate that. Verse 10 says, For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. A properly covered woman speaks a language of defeat and victory to the angelic world. Now think about this. The woman throughout Scripture, and many times is referred to as the bride, represents the church of Jesus Christ, who is the bride of Christ. When the church is in submission to her lordship, to her headship, that is the ultimate defeat of Satan, who has, who, who, who has the choice we as individuals have the freedom to choose. And when, that, when the church freely submits herself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that is the ultimate defeat for Satan. It's a little bit like Austin mentioned this morning. It's like stepping on the head of Satan. Jesus, or God predicted back in, in Genesis at the fall, at the, at the time of the fall, he said, I will raise up a seed and it will, it will crush, his heel will crush your head. And that is, I think, some of the crushing that it's talking about. When the church, victorious, and under the submission of her lordship, freely 
operates in the role in which he has been called or she has been called to operate, that is the ultimate defeat for Satan. And we have that picture then translated in a literal way as having the uh, woman being covered in the uncovered head for men. And then verse 14 and 15. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is his honor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for recovering. The length of your hair, distinguished by the short hair for men and the long hair for ladies, determines the amount of honor that is going to be bestowed upon your head. Now, interestingly enough, I never noticed that before until I was studying at this time, but every time that the word head is used in this passage of Scripture, you have to break it out. Sometimes it's talking about a physical head, the physical head. Sometimes it's talking about a spiritual head, those whom God has placed over us. But every time the word head is used, it is the same Greek word being used. So that leads me to believe that honor or dishonor is bestowed on the physical head as well as the spiritual head as it, re- as it, as it retains to the roles and, and the responsibilities that God has set up. So fathers and husbands, the instruction that is found in this passage of Scripture lends a key to your ability to being honored and respected and also that of Christ. When you allow or when you sanction your daughters, daughter or daughters or wife to shorten the hair or to cut the hair and not be adequately covered, then you are, then you are teaching them how to dishonor you and ultimately dishonor Christ. It's a little bit the way that an unmarried couple that engages in in fornication, in promiscuous uh, activities prior to marriage, and then they get married and suddenly wake up one day and realize that their marriage is in shambles and is deteriorating and wondering why there's a little bit of love and respect within the marriage. Well, the reason is because you have taught your spouse how to distrust you and how to be unfaithful to you. You shouldn't be surprised if there's a lack of trust and respect because we've taught the spouse how to be uh, dishonoring and untrustworthy. Uh, Granted, God's forgiveness and his mercy is there. But I believe adequate steps have to be taken to take back the ground that was given through iniquities that were, that were broken and uh, set into motion. And so God has given us this teaching here to represent how that we can fall in, in line of, of, of submission to our Lordship, Jesus Christ. And, uh, of course, as we do that, then the chain also, um, the, the recipients um, whom God has placed around us 
also receive the benefits of our submission. I, I listed the uh, passage, of course, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 6, 1 through 16. I'd like to go on to the next one, the anointing of oil. There once was a young couple that uh, had uh, two little boys, and uh, they were just like a lot of other couples that, um, that were trying to figure out the, the mechanics of parenthood and uh, all the business that two little guys bring into the dynamic of marriage. And uh, life was going fairly normal for them, with the exception that the, 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 the second son, the, 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 the youngest boy, um, really struggled with a, uh, a, a near a constant earache. I mean, just repeatedly uh, having uh, ear infections and, and just uh, would get over one bout and, and would head right into the next one. It, it, that's, it seemed like to them. And uh, this went on fairly consistently for the first two years of, of that young boy's life. The parents made lots of trips to the doctor and spent lots of money on, on medication, and, and it just seemed like it was a cycle of life for them. And uh, on a few occasions of visits to the doctor, the possibility of a surgery was, was discussed with the parents, uh, a common procedure where tubes were inserted in ears uh, was discussed, but the doctor wanted to wait till the child was a little bit older so that uh, he would not, uh, uh, because the... the um, the success of the surgery uh, uh, um, was, uh, was uh, increased when, when the child, as the child grew older. So he was stalling for time. The doctor was stalling for time. Well, one Sunday morning, uh, the parents woke up to yet another bout of ear infection. And uh, the young boy, two-year-old son, was, was writhing in pain and screaming and crying and and so the parents called up the doctor, and they met him uh, at an emergency visit at, at his uh, office. And um, I still recall very clearly as the doctor looked me in the face, and he handed me a little bottle of antibiotic, and he said, this is the strongest antibiotic that we have. And uh, he said, if this doesn't do it, we have no alternative but to put tubes in uh, your little son's uh, ears. That little bottle, $50. And back in the mid-'80s, on my paycheck, that was a lot of money. And plus the fact that we had an emergency visit again to the doctor's office. And I just remember going home and just thinking, when is all this craziness going to end? And... Um, we got home, we gave Bronson his first dose of that strong antibiotic, and he immediately broke out in a full body rash. And uh, he reacted to the medication that was given. I was devastated. I mean, $50 down the drain, uh, an emergency visit to the doctor down the drain, and we still had a screaming son. And I was at a, I was at a low. And I was just, I just didn't know which way to go anymore. And it was there at the bottom of my despair that the Holy Spirit came to me that Sunday morning. And he nudged me and he says, James, have you ever considered anointing Bronson 
for the healing of his body. It was a brand new thought to me. Um, I don't know that it had ever even occurred to me before. And uh, I wasn't sure uh, what to think of it because I guess my concept of anointing with oil was, at that point in life, was that uh, you waited until the person's almost dead and you try to quick revive him, you know. And, uh, and furthermore, I didn't even know if, if it was the right thing to anoint a child. And so I called up Clarence that morning, and, and I asked him if he and, and Henry would come out that afternoon and, and have an anointing service. And what came out of that occasion revolutionized our family's philosophy uh, and how we view sickness and health and healing from that point forward. Bronson was miraculously healed that afternoon when Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, touched him that Sunday morning nearly 22 years ago. In fact, we took Bronson to the doctor a couple days later based on the doctor's request. And as he checked into his ears, he kept going, hmm, hmm. And uh, he testified that his ears were completely normal and there was no infection whatsoever. And I took the liberty to testify to him that day that he had reacted to the meds and uh, there was nothing and he broke on a rash and there was, and, and we ended up anointing him with oil for the healing of the fish. And I said, what you see in his ears, testimony to the healing touch of Jesus Christ. His response, huh. That was it. And by the way, to God's glory, that act of faith cleared up the earache from that point forward. There was no more earaches from that point forward. Bronson was healed in the name of Jesus. James 5, verse 13 through 18 gives us the right, the basis for this right. This ordinance is, is unique from other New Testament ordinances in that it comes as a suggestion and not as a command. And I think the reason, I believe the reason for that is because it is based upon the faith of one who is afflicted or the faith of the one who has spiritual oversight of the one who is afflicted. By the way, I feel very strongly that you as a parent can speak for the life of your child. And I feel very free to anoint a child based on the faith of the parent if you would request that. <clears throat> our experience with Bronze was such a faith builder in our lives that from that point forward, I began to exercise my spiritual authority that God has vested in us, in me and, and whenever we would just get even the common cold or, or the flu bug or whatever it was, any kind of sickness, our first response was to gather the children together, the family together. We would lay hands on the afflicted person, and we would cry out to God for a healing of the body. I can't tell you how many times within hours or even minutes sometimes that the person was restored to health. Now, does it always work that way? No, and I don't understand. I don't have the reason why. God has the picture. He knows. But we've also witnessed that here's a body 
Sister Barbara, who was anointed, and as far as we know, is completely free of cancer. It is the same authority that Gene Zimmerman exercised when he spoke life into his little daughter, uh, Madeline, when she was dying or perhaps even had died at birth. And he took the authority to speak life into that child, and she drew her breath. And from that day forward has been a healthy and robust little child. It's, it was interesting to, to us as parents <clears throat> that while we lived in Canada for nearly 15 years and we had free health insurance, <laughs> if you can call it that, um, it didn't cost us anything other than the taxes we paid, uh, but as far as free uh, insurance... And, it, and even I was amazed that with a family of eight, I think I can count on my one hand how many times we ended up going to the doctor. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to the doctor. And I am certainly not saying that, that we uh, are healthier than anyone else or better than anyone else. That, that's not what I'm trying to get. What I'm encouraging you to do is try God first. And, and, and again, I just, even the conversation that I had with Doug uh, the other day as he requested anointing, and just saying that, you know, there may be a time for, for you to do further doctoring, and I'm totally okay with that. God can use doctors to bring healing. I totally feel, but my point is, give God recognition first. And... Um, Take that opportunity. He's given it to us. Well, I'd like to go into excommunication. While this exercise may not be considered a New Testament ordinance, it is certainly a direct instruction to the function of the church of God. Several months ago, um, Brother Henry came to the rest of the pastoral team and uh, he highly recommended that we read, each of us read the book, why Church Matters by Josh Harris. Uh, in fact, he was so excited about it, he said that uh, if, if we don't have a copy, he'll buy one for us. And, um, and he would uh, really encourage us to read it. Well, that piqued my interest even more because I knew that the young men were studying that book in Sunday school. And uh, so I took the opportunity to, uh, to uh, snatch a... Uh, I, I, did, I couldn't wait on Henry. He didn't bring my free book, so... I took the opportunity to, to snatch one out in the back in the foyer there. And on the way out and back from Levon and Beth's wedding, I read that book. And I was blessed. I was, I was, let me just tell you, I highly recommend that book to everyone in this congregation. And particularly, if there's anyone here this morning that is thinking of leaving your congregation or your church, I would highly recommend that you read that before you make any move. Now, on the back cover of the book, it sums it up this way. Church isn't where we go. It is who we are. And then he further goes on to say, we were never meant to live faith in isolation. The church is the place God uses to, to grow us, to encourage us, and to use our gifts for his glory. 
the primary book, the primary thrust of the book is is something that Harris addresses, and he calls it church daters. Uh, he said there's three ways that you can pick out a church dater, and and the first one he mentions is that when the attitude towards church becomes me-centered. You know, it never ceases to amaze me that when there are individuals that have left or that leave a church body because their spirits have been wounded or were wounded by someone or something that happened, and they, they end up leaving, and I've heard it numerous times already, and, and then the comment is that, you know, nobody even came to talk to me about it since that, that we left. Now, that's not a good thing. But my point is, who left? Did the church separate themselves from you? Or did you separate yourself from the church? And there's a difference. Now, again, we would still say, we would still encourage that we go and talk to someone and, and try to deal with whatever's going on. But it is just so ironic that so many individuals have a me-centered mentality. What can the church do for me? How can the church fulfill my needs? Oh, you haven't met my expectations, so I am wounded in my heart. I tell you, we've got to get beyond that. We, 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 our attitude has to be, what can I give to the church? What can I contribute to the body? What can I do for you? That's the, that's the attitude that we have to develop. So the second one he mentions is when there is an independent spirit that presides. This spirit, and it, by the way, it is not the Holy Spirit, says nobody is going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing regardless of what you think or feel. And that's a very arrogant attitude at its core. And, and it, it destructs, it, it erodes the relationship within the body of Christ. And the third thing he mentions about the church dater is that he tends to be critical, or a church dater tends to be critical. These individuals, bless their heart, are usually short on allegiance and quick to find fault within the body of Christ. Well, obviously, Harris does not recommend anyone leaving their local congregation, or very quickly at least. And um, he rather takes you on a long journey into your own heart to fix what's wrong in there. And uh, that usually resolves the need to leave. However, he recognizes that there may be times, perhaps if a church becomes so apostate, that there is a time that you need to separate yourself from that body. Or maybe it's a, a, a relocation that you need to find another congregation. And so he wrote, he dedicated one of the chapters uh, of, of his book to, um, to uh, give ten, 10 things that matter most when choosing your church. That's the title of the, cho uh, the chapter, Choosing Your Church. 10 things that matter most. And he gave... 10 questions. He asked 10 questions. The first one is, is this a church where God's word is faithfully taught? That's the question you should ask yourself when you're, when you're looking for a, a, a new church body. Second one, is this a church where sound doctrine matters? Is this a church in which the gospel is cherished and clearly proclaimed? 
is this a church committed to reaching out to, to the uh, non-Christians with, uh, with the gospel? Is this a church whose leaders are, are characterized by their humility and integrity? Is this a church where people strive to live by God's word? Is this a church where I can find and cultivate godly relationships? Is this a church where members are called to serve? Is this a church I'm willing to join as is with enthusiasm and faith in God? And I purposely missed number nine. I was shocked when I read what he wrote on number nine. Is this a church that is willing to kick me out? Now, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the word kick me out, so I put in parentheses, remove me. <laughs> I couldn't believe what he had to say. In fact, I, was, I just thought the advice he gave was very, very solid. <clears throat> I'd like to read what he said in that part of his book, if you can bear with me. I just thought he, he worded it so well. Is this a church that is willing to kick me out? Here's what he says. This priority might sound old-fashioned to you, but there is a hard, important truth here. When a person who claims to be a Christian lives in a way that blatantly contradicts all that means to be a disciple of Christ, a faithful church's responsibility is to begin the process of removing that person from membership and to treat him or her like an unbeliever in hopes that he or she will repent and ultimately be restored. This is not harsh and abrupt or abrupt. This practice is called church discipline and was instituted by Jesus, Matthew 18. Why should you be excited? He asked this question. Why should you be excited about the potential of being expelled from church, from a church? And then he answers this. He says, I gain a wonderful sense of protection in knowing that if I commit a scandalous sin and show no repentance, my church would not put up with it. They would plead with me to change. They would patiently confront me with God's word. And eventually, if I refuse to change, they would lovingly kick me out. I say, remove me. <laughs> Remember, that the purpose behind church discipline is first to restore. 400 years ago, and he quotes uh, Menno Simons, he says, 400 years ago, Menno Simons wrote, we do not want to expel any, but rather to receive, not to amputate, but rather to heal, not to discard, but rather to win back, not to grieve, but rather to comfort, not to condemn, but rather to save, end of quote. So church discipline is an expression of love. It's a way to try to restore a sinning brother as well as a way to protect the witness of the church. After all, the power of a church in a community starts with its example. As our generation knows too well, hypocrisy destroys a church's witness and leaves its message discredited. A church committed to glorifying God and reaching the lost will not only have membership, but will clearly define what that membership requires it will want to be able to answer clearly anyone who asks who is truly part of the church and who is not. Discipline is also important when someone begins spreading false teaching. In this case, discipline guards the church against the damaging effects of heresy. 
So look for a church that will not only welcome you into its membership, but will lovingly hold you to a commitment as a Christian, a church that will love you enough to put you out of fellowship for the good of your soul. Wow. That is unpopular in the Western church. And he hits a bang on, I think. <clears throat> Marriage. Again, we don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. Suffice it to say that marriage is, um, is uh, intended to endure as long as both husband and wife live. Are you as warm as I am? Why don't you stand up a little bit, okay? See some sleepy eyes. Maybe it's a little bit, it feels a little stuffy in here. Um, <clears throat> it's the earliest institution that God sanctioned. And uh, while, again, this is not a compulsory ordinance, uh, it certainly requires certain boundaries within the bonds of marriage. Okay, you can be seated. Let's go through a couple of these that we find in the New Testament. Marriage be, uh, between believers and unbelievers is forbidden. That's very clearly stated in, uh, when Paul addressed this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Don't have the time to turn to that. Jot it down and look at it. Certainly this is true for marriage. Actually, I am going to just turn back there a little bit. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And he goes on to talk about the difference between the light and the dark. And he's just saying they don't, they don't connect. There's no commonality between the two. Ezra Peachy, a fellow missionary that we worked with for many years up in Red Lake, uh, maintained this position. He would marry two Christian people and he would marry two unbelievers because it was a state ordinance or a, a state recognition uh, for in order to have somebody uh, living together. But he would not marry an unbeliever and a believer. Now, in one sense, it's a little bit of an oxymoron to say that a Christian would marry an unbeliever. Would a Christian actually do that? A true born-again Disciple of Jesus Christ, would they truly marry an unbeliever? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I can answer that. Um, second thing is that marriage is a sacred bond between one man and one woman, lasting until one or the other dies. A good friend of mine, Perry, came to know the Lord about a year after his marriage dissolved in divorce. In fact, the devastation of the divorce, among, along with some other things, is really what drove him to find a relationship with Jesus Christ. He weighed the cost of following Christ very, very carefully because he realized part of the cost for him was the idea, by the way, which was totally foreign to him uh, at the onset, but part of the cost for him meant to remain celibate. And uh, he simply couldn't 
imagine going throughout the rest of his life being a single person. But he finally came to peace with that, and he was all in. That was very much his nature. He was either all in or not at all, and he went all in. Several years later, he bumped into some other believers who began to encourage him to marry. In fact, they said he is free to remarry because his divorce took place before he was a believer. And so I just conclude this point with saying perhaps our greatest threat comes within the walls of our four, the, the four walls of our churches, unfortunately. There's so much more we could say about that. According to New Testament teaching, divorce and remarriage is not an option because a man's hardness of heart in the Old Testament, Moses did allow it, the, the divorce, but uh, Jesus reiterated the permanency of marriage when he said that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And then the fourth one that I have is that polygamy is also prohibited in the New Testament, and we see that in the book of uh, Corinthians as well, it's chapter 7. Um, it doesn't take us long to look at the generations, the multiple generations of unrest in the Middle East that came out of polygamy. And any time that you would read that taking place in the Old Testament, just many times um, you, you, you see unhappiness and unrest and jealousy and just a lot of things that aren't healthy in a family. Well, I want to conclude with the last one, and that is the ordaining of elders. The verse that I'd like to look at is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, And he, God, put all things under his feet and, he, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I don't know if we can grasp the full implications of this verse, these two verses. The church of God is so close to the heart of God, so central to his work in the world, that he calls us the body of Christ. We are his fullness. We become the, the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ here in the world. I just think of that. Jesus was here for three and a half years. And, and in that time frame, he created the local body, the physical manifestation of who he is, the fullness of who he is. Wow, that's amazing that he would choose us, that he would choose me, that he would choose you to be that fullness of who he is. When we see church as God sees it, I think we learn several extremely important lessons. One is that church matters more to him than I think we realize. He also calls us and expects us to be part of it because we are part of it. <laughs> as a body of believers. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, 
and truly have him in your heart. You are part of his fullness. And if Jesus loves the church, so should you and I. And that leads me to say that we want to do everything we can to keep the church moving forward. Health and good health and in vitality and strength and in power. Part of the process is to ordain shepherds and elders and overseers. Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 says that the church is to appoint elders in every city. It's the instruction that we have. And then he, the, the instruction follows up with, with more instruction on how to qualify these men, these leaders, these shepherds, these overseers. As we obey this command, we ensure the forward momentum that Jesus initiated when he said that the gates of hell are not going to be able to stand against the power of the church. And so we also want to keep the church in good health and in, in vitality and in strength and by appointing leaders and shepherds who, are, who take the role and responsibility carefully and, um, and with humility. I just want to testify today. I'm so grateful for the men that God has appointed to walk alongside of me here in the body and uh, just their servanthood and their contribution to the body. I just want to publicly thank them and also thank you as a congregation for your support. We've felt it over and over and we're so grateful for that and uh, we just want to bless you for it. Let's pray. I'm going to have Keith come and close however he wants. Thank